Isn't it good to say that term, he conquered the grave? Like all week long, I don't know if you've watched the news. Oh my goodness. Swine flu. Terrorism. The whole economy's falling apart. Taxes. Kidnappings. Piracy. I mean, after a while, you could start to get depressed. Man, I've been trying to watch the news so that I know how to pray better. And I'll tell you what, the more I watch the news, <laughs> I pray better, but I have to fight depression. We live in a world that is really, literally falling apart, don't we? It's that weird thing about being a believer is understanding that this world in, is, in and of itself is a world that is, is heading towards a certain end that, that is coming, and, it, and it's coming quickly. Um, I think one of the things that I've appreciated about reading the Bible so much is that I get to know the end. Man, if I didn't know the end, gosh, I seriously do not understand how people live without knowing that the end is going to be okay. We live in this weird form of progressive culture that somehow thinks we're just all progressing and things will get better and better and better. As if they don't look back on history and understand that every time we think it's going to get better, we kind of in a weird way make it worse, don't we? Like I was thinking through just the 20th century alone. Everybody came into the 20th century. You had these incredible uh, scientists. You had guys like uh, Edison. You had guys like Tesla. You had uh, different uh, social scientists like uh, Freud and, and Piaget and all these different guys that promised us this 20th century was going to be this gloriously wonderful century full of all these wonderful things that science was going to do for us and that government was going to do for us. Everything was moving that direction and everything was wonderful until this little thing called World War I. When World War I happened, the whole world kind of got uneasy there because everything was supposed to get better. They saw things like mustard gas. For the first time, chemical weapons were used to kill people, and they saw the destruction, and they saw men coming home from war that were scarred by some pretty nasty things. So Woodrow Wilson and a group of people decided they were going to create this thing called the League of Nations. They were going to put together this concept in which somehow, if we just work together, if we can all just get along, that somehow we can progress our na- this world to a better place. And so they formed it together and forgot in the middle of it that there's still guys like... Hitler. Oh boy, he was a booger, wasn't he? (laughs) Hitler came along and rose up. In fact, he was trying to create a better world too. His world was really weird. But he had in his concept that progress was we need to create this master race and in creating this master race that somehow out of it will come progress. There will be a world that's better if we can just get rid of certain groups of people and just have this master race. And ensued, what came from that is World War II. And so then we thought, oh, the United Nations. That's what will keep the world together. But quickly we learned that we started this little thing called the Cold War because along came a man named Stalin. We thought FDR had solved all our problems. We thought we'd created a government in which now we had this social safety network. We know that social safety network would create a bigger mess than we knew what to do with ourselves. And we started off on a cold war. And then all of a sudden, we could go to the moon. And John F. Kennedy was going to be this guy that was going to take our culture and was going to make all the world a better place. And then a bullet ended that. And you just saw lives shattered at that moment in the 60s. Martin Luther King Jr. also got a bullet in the 60s. And in the 70s, when we weren't sure what to do with government, suddenly along came a man named Nixon who was also going to make things better. And he ended up going off to jail. Almost. Thank goodness for a pardon, huh? That didn't make people happy with Gerald Ford. So along came Jimmy Carter. Oh, the peanut president. (laughs) We were so happy to have Jimmy. Until our economy got shattered. So then we thought, oh, Ronald Reagan. We'll bring Ronald Reagan along. And he came in and then somehow he was going to come in and fix all the problems. And he came in and, and all these guys have done the best they could throughout time. So we ended the Cold War. Oh, good. The Cold War is over. The world is going to be a happy place. Oh, 
Dang it, terrorism. As that got shattered, this little thing we created over in Afghanistan as we tried to fight the Cold War suddenly flared up in these little groups we called Al-Qaeda. The Taliban sprung up and all of a sudden in the 90s as we were all getting richer and richer and richer and more comfortable and more safe and more secure was all shattered on September 11, 2001. And probably when I say that, you remember where you were, don't you? All of us went, And we had just elected George Bush, the Christian president, and so everything was going to be okay. Went off to Iraq. The world was supposed to be a better place. Everything kept tumbling. So then we needed hope. So what did we do? We elected a man that brought change. Yes, we can. I hate to tell all of them whether they're Republican or Democrat. So please, when you send me emails this week, I am, being, I am picking on everybody. <laughs> Democrats and Republicans alike. To Barack Obama, I say, no, we can't. We can't. See, the thing that was different about the Apostle Paul was he understood something big. We can't, but God can See, if there's one group of people that should stand screaming at the loudest, that should say to everyone, I don't care whether it's Bush or Obama or Reagan or the first George Bush or Bill Clinton or Jimmy Carter or Gerald Ford or, or Nixon or, or Johnson or, or Kennedy or blah, 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 all the way go back. We, government, science, can't. But we serve a God that can Before even he created the world, God set in motion when he created the angelic world a group of people that were going to worship him. Not only that, but then as he created this this group, these angels that were going to worship him, he decided he and this trinity and his perfection of who he was, he created then this world. He, He created the stars. He created the heavens. He created the world. He created everything around it. And everything was designed to bring him glory, every last aspect of it. And he looked at these two people that he created, Adam and Eve, when he put them in the garden. And he said, listen to me. You keep about my purpose and my plan, and I promise you, you won't regret it. And his purpose and plan was you may eat of anything. You go crazy, but there's just one tree you're not supposed to, the knowledge of good and evil. This tree over here. Well, everyone knows Satan questioned God. Back in the book of Ezekiel, we learn about that. And after he questioned God, he came down to earth and he got Adam and Eve to believe that God wasn't worth it and that you should have a different purpose and plan. You should make this purpose and plan about you. Oh. (laughs) Me. You mean I can make this about me? Yes. And from that stemmed a mess that we've been in now for years and years and years and years and years and years. And you'd think it'd make us depressed. But along came, after years and years, this means and mechanism now where God was going to demonstrate something that he'd put in place through the sacrificial system, through all the prophets, through the kings. Everything pointed to this amazing work that was about ready to happen. Onto the scene busts this guy named John, and he explains to everybody, I've got phenomenal news. There is one coming who's going to change everything. Somewhere around 4 B.C., Emmanuel was born, God with us. King of kings, Lord of lords, taking on perfect flesh, coming. And he lived this perfect life. And not only did he live a perfect life, but he showed us literally who God the Father was by how he lived his life. He even said, look, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And we, it, the Bible talks about the fact that we beheld his glory. Glory is the one of only, full of grace and truth. We saw this one. And, and, and the people that were around him saw the miracles that he did. He told the wind to stop. He raised people from the dead. And as they watched him, they were blown away that this individual came along at a certain time at a certain place in the Roman Empire and they thought for sure he was going to bring down the Roman Empire. But that wasn't what Jesus came to do. There was this thing called the cross is really why he came. See, in this big giant story of God and the reason that I don't get depressed 
is because suddenly into this story of God interjects this amazing work of God where I cannot absorb the wrath of God. It's impossible. When Adam and Eve sinned and everyone sinned, we all deserve to absorb the wrath of God, not just for a time, but because he was eternal and because he was holy. I deserved a holy and eternal punishment forever. And on that cross, God in the flesh put himself there so that he might, he might absorb the wrath that was owed me. Sin was nailed to the tree and those of us that place our faith in Jesus Christ now face it no more. That's good news. But it didn't stop there. They put him in this tomb. He went there for three days and the whole world didn't realize it. But in the angelic realm at that time, God the Father was taking God the Son through the entire angelic realm proclaiming, I won. I've defeated sin. I've defeated death. I've defeated Satan. Everything about it, I have won. And then the third day, Sunday, he raises Jesus Christ from the dead and he reminds them, you can't hold my son in the grave. No. I am God. Jesus Christ came and proclaimed who he was as king and 500 people saw him and they saw him, literally touched him. They saw him now in his new resurrected flesh and not only did they see him, but then they saw him ascend up in the heavens and he promised them that I'm going, but I need to go. It's better for you that I go because when I go, I'm going to send another, the Holy Spirit, who's going to now come and all those who place their faith in me are going to receive this Holy Spirit because it is absolutely impossible to live this life, absolutely impossible, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit coming into your life and you will receive power when my spirit comes upon you Acts 1.8 and you will testify of who I am to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world that is my purpose and plan and that is why I saved you to proclaim my goodness all over this planet so that men might repent and be reconciled to me amen but that's not even all Jesus Christ promised, I will build my church. He was talking with the guys in Matthew 16, and as he's rapping with them, he looks at me and says, who do people say that I am? And they all said, oh, you're this, you're that. And Peter says, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, <laughs> you're not that smart. God revealed that to you. And on that faith, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of death won't stand against it. And from the moment he left, the Holy Spirit has been about one purpose and one plan, the building of God's church. And that is the story of God. And it's all moving towards a time when Jesus Christ is going to come back and he's going to come back to get his church and establish his kingdom. And then it talks about this idea in 1 Corinthians 15 that when he has now come back, established his kingdom, when all things are placed in subjection underneath Jesus Christ, He's going to take all those that the Father gave him in 1 Corinthians 15 and there's going to come this point where he's going to hand us all back to the Father and he's going to look at the Father and say, I finished my job. I have made a people beautiful for you. And it then says that the, the Son will then assume his role that he had from the very beginning with the Father and we will spend eternity worshiping him. No more pain. No more suffering. That's the story of God. See, one story, progress is going nowhere. This story is going towards an end in which we will be with God forever and ever and ever. That is good news. That is the gospel. And the reason that I don't get depressed is because I know I live in a world that there is a king on his throne that is moving everything towards this point at which he's going to set everything right, all injustice, everything that ever happened. I have a God in heaven who's going to establish it and I will then live in a perfect kingdom, in a perfect world with him for eternity. So therefore, I can put my head on my bed at night and know it's good. I know Jesus. And the apostle Paul knew this as well. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 was wrestling through this. Man, he had a tough life. The Apostle Paul watched as he, as he was seeking to be a part of God's purpose and God's plan. And in, in accomplishing that, what he had to do was is sometimes he had to get beat. And sometimes he had to suffer. And sometimes he had to go through all these different things. But Paul never forgot one thing. He knew where he was going. See, I think the biggest lie of Satan is to get us to forget where everything is moving towards. 
Boy, he gets us there, doesn't he? Pretty soon our whole life gets wrapped up in making money for our safety and our comfort and our security. And we we start to to get jobs that allow us to do this. And we elect presidents that give us this. That was what the election was about, by the way. Did you know that? Security. Safety. Financially. Politically. And ultimately, why? Comfort. Oh, we like comfort, don't we? (laughs) Do we like comfort? There's nothing better than a lazy boy. A bag of chips, a soda. We like it because there's something inside of us that tells us it's right. But the problem is that safety and comfort and security you will never experience here because that is a promise not for now. That is a promise for the future in heaven. We're not promised safety and security now. What we're promised now are many trials, aren't we? It's not if you experience trials, James 1. It's when you experience trials. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, and you can go ahead and go there with me. We're going to focus there today. Is a guy that knew how to have comfort in a world that was falling apart. 2 Corinthians. And let's start actually in verse 16. Chapter 4, verse 16. We'll go to 5 here in a second. How did Paul keep his head while the world was falling apart? Verse 16. Look at this. He said, we don't lose heart. That word lose heart literally means it's that side of me that where courage is found. I do not lose courage. There's something about his heart. There was something going on to it that he said, I, I don't lose it. He says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Our outer self. All of us in this room are looking at our outer selves. And just so you know, I can see it from here. You're falling apart. (laughs) And you know you're falling apart, don't you? Oh boy, every time I tip my head, my hair is falling apart. Or at least off. We live in a world of, of entropy. In which unless a force acts to bring it back into order, everything kind of goes... And it goes right here, doesn't it? Dang. This outer thing, he says, I don't look, I don't worry about this. I don't. Now, he saw this as the temple of God, so it's not as if he didn't take care of it. He saw this as his ability now to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ so he didn't get fat and slobby and, and anything like that. He didn't just smoke cigarettes and eat bonbons and, and drink soda. He understood that this was, this was a tool that God had given him to advance the gospel to its greatest. But he also knew that as much as he took care of this, it was falling apart. I don't care how many miles you run. I don't care how many weights you lift. I don't care how many carrots you eat. You are falling apart. But Paul understood there was something different. There was this outer self that people saw, but he said there's this inner thing that's happening. And he's going to explain this inner life in verse 17. For, by, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In verse 17, he says, look, this, this outer self is being afflicted every day. Every day there's problems of their own, isn't there? Man, you wake up and the moment you hit your alarm, that's your first problem. <laughs> True? Uh, uh. See, some of you cringed right when I did that. You hand out your scripts every day to your family, don't you? This is the scripts by, by which we'll follow every day, my glorious children. We hand them out and they don't follow them. This light momentary affliction though he's talking about. Literally what he's talking about is the same idea out of James 1. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when we experience trials of various kinds, knowing that the, the compression of your faith, the, 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 literally the pushing in of you, this inner self that's pushing to the outside, this stuff that's nasty in our life, every time the world pushes down on you, actually it is an absolute blessing because as the world pushes down on you, out comes the things that aren't supposed to be there. And so he goes, I'm good. Push down on me. Because as you push down on me, look what he talks about in verse 17. 
As this world comes down me, it is preparing for me an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. See, Paul understood in this life that these things, it doesn't matter what happens to me. It doesn't matter if my day doesn't go like I planned it because it's not my day anyways. It's God's day. And these trials that he brings into my life, no matter what trials God brings into my life to be able to, to, to literally to put a weight upon me, a light momentary affliction, is because he's preparing me for something absolutely beautiful. He's preparing me for a day when I will stand in front of him. See, that's the other lie of Satan, I think. We forget that one day we're all going to stand in front of God. Don't we? I would venture to say not many of you woke up this morning and went, oh, I'm going to stand in front of God someday. No, you probably just wondered what kind of cereal you were going to eat. That's the life that we face. Quickly, we are just kind of going through the motions of the daily life. But Paul said, no, everything that comes into my life, all of this light momentary affliction is preparing me for something great. And he said, and he said not only that, but, but it has to do with these seen and unseen things, which he's now going to explain in verse 1 of chapter 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, in other words, even if I were to die, this, this tent that I live in, by the way, tent is used there, so it's speaking of just this temporary thing. We have a building from a God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Isn't that awesome? Paul lived his life saying, go ahead and kill me. I got something better. I think the reason people don't want to go to heaven is we think it's kind of mystical and ethereal, don't we? We think it's this like disconnected, you know, and we sit up on a cloud playing a harp and it's like, do you want to go to that? No. I don't want to go there. But instead, the Bible talks about it as not this disconnected ethereal reality. It talks about the fact that I will have a literal flesh just like Jesus had after he died and rose again. That's what I'm going to look like. You can touch me. You can feel me. Not only that, but he's creating for us a world, a new heavens and a new earth, Revelation 21 and 22, that is going to be far more glorious than this world. And so we sit around in this world going, oh, this is so special, not understanding this is only a shadow of what is to come. I mean, think about it. The body you're going to get is so radically different. It won't be falling apart. You will never have to worry about hair loss in heaven. We have a brother in the front. Come forward, my child. I won't have to worry about death any longer. I won't have to be a helicopter mom following my children around anymore. Isn't that nice? Oh, boy. You're sitting there with your children. Never again. Why? Because it says they will put their hand in the hole of a serpent and it won't strike them. The lion will lay down with the lamb. See, when I talk safety, comfort, security, it is a lie to think that we have it now. It is absolutely truth to believe I will have it one day. So therefore now, how I live my life is understanding there is no such thing as safety. There is no such thing as comfort. There is no such thing as security. These are only shadows of what is the amazing thing to come. And that's why Paul was able to have confidence. Look at verse 2. He said, for in this tent we groan, don't we? Oh, boy, do we groan. I played basketball last week on Sunday. Played golf on Monday. Living the life of safety, comfort, and security. Oh, but I groaned. Oh, did I groan. My wife mocked me. <clears throat> then I reminded her out of the book of Proverbs that told us what to do with mocking wives. But <laughs> We groan. We ache. We feel pain. And he says, what that does to us, he said, is it longs us, it causes those that truly know Jesus, this longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. And the idea is, is so that I will have another body to put on, and not just to, to sit there and nowhere, but I'll have something else. Verse 4, for while we're still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, or not that we would have a body in the future, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may, may, may be swallowed up in life. Love that term. 
All of this one day will be swallowed up by life. In other words, there's going to come a day when God takes the old heavens and the old earth and everything gets burned away. And when it gets burned away, God is now in and of himself going to swallow everything up in what is life and life eternal, life like we've never imagined. And as Paul was banking on his life, he understood his life today had bearing on the life to come. But that life to come would swallow up this life, meaning it would be greater and better. Now see, the thing that starts to happen though, I think in our world is, is that we forget that there's something better. We get lulled to sleep so badly, thinking this is all there is. We might as well just eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. We don't coordinate our life understanding that there's something greater. You know this, that if you were going to buy something, you would save for it to be able to get it in the future. I'm taking everything now and I am banking on the reality of a future that is better than anything that I can have here. Jesus talked about it like in the context of a pearl of great price or a treasure in the field. That means I take everything that I do, my money, my time, my kids, my family, everything about it, and I put it in subjection to the reality that one day something better is coming. Not only that, but I start to ingrain it within my children. Now, what does it look like to ingrain eternity within your children? What does it look like? Think about that for a second. What would you do different to teach your kids that this life is not all there is? I think one of the greatest things that we can show them is by how we live our life. See, we can talk it till we're blue in the face, can't we? That's why 85% of high school students leave the church, by the way. We have a bunch of people that talk. We talk a phenomenal Christianity, but we don't live a phenomenal Christianity. We talk about the resurrection, but by how we live our life, we are heretics in regards to the resurrection. So in other words, let me ask you what's more important. Protecting heresy in how we talk or protecting heresy in how we live? I would say to you, James says, show you my faith by my works. If we really want to raise a generation that does not believe that this world is all it is, it's going to require those of us in this room to honestly start to live like it. And not because we're like, oh, knuckle down. No, because hope. Because that's what we want. See, I would venture to guess that the reality that we all face is that probably we don't really want that like we say we do. I think if we really got down in our gut, there's a lot of it that we're really content here, aren't we? Oh, we like it. We like the Los Angeles Lakers. Even though they're the most corrupt team on the planet. We love our houses, our cars. We love air conditioning. Especially now, don't we? We love all these things, but to start to teach our children, children, these are just shadows. There's something greater. And then in verse 5, he says this. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. See, the reason I say we can't knuckle down is that I can't do it. It's going to require the spirit in me. There's something about the spirit of God. Go with me to Romans 8 that constantly beckons me back to this different life. Romans 8. Look at verse 16. When I come to Christ and I receive this spirit, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, verse 16, that we are children of God and if children then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. That's key. Do you understand that in order to be glorified with God one day, you've got to suffer with him? There is no glorification without suffering. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth and to 
And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit, the Spirit given to us, and we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. See, the thing that's so crafty about Satan is he gets us to go la, 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 la in regards to that. The only time we hear about that is funerals. Have you ever noticed that? Suddenly, all of a sudden, everybody wants to talk about how wonderful life is, but generally, we don't talk about it in light of Jesus in heaven. We generally say things like this, can't wait to go to heaven because I'll play great golf. Really? Or the people we might see, or the things we might do. But Paul's like, no, you've missed the point. See, I just got back from Sacramento. I went up there, and, I, and when I got up there, I got there, and immediately the first thing I wanted to do was to call my wife and hear her voice and hear my kid's voice. I loved it. I got off the phone, you know, I got off the plane, I'm like, hey, baby, how you doing? You know, and I'm so excited, and, and then I, I go, put the kids on the phone, you know, and Joseph goes, and, and Brianna goes, hi, daddy, and you're just like, no. And then, you know, so I get on back on the phone with my wife, and then just the whole time I'm there and I'm away from her, I wasn't thinking, hey, when I get back to Simi Valley, I'll play great golf. Hey, when I get back to Simi Valley, boy, I can't wait to go to In-N-Out Burger. When I'm away from Simi Valley, the reason that I miss Simi Valley is because I got a wife that I adore. I've got little children that are one and two, so they're not teenagers yet. So when you walk in the door, they're like, Daddy! Right? When I am away from them, I don't miss Simi Valley because of all these weird things that we've made it. I miss Simi Valley because I miss my family. The reason that I long for heaven is I can't wait to see Jesus. I can't wait for him to look at me and go, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in the paradise. The reason that we long has nothing to do for, with a place. The reason that we long has everything to do with a person. Jesus. I long to see the day when everything, sin and death and, and Satan, are thrown into the lake of fire. I long to see the day when the Son takes all of us as his beautiful bride, his church, and he goes in front of God the Father and he says, I did my work. I've beautified these people. And he hands all of us as this love gift right back to the Father and to watch now as we enter into eternity. I can't wait for that. Heaven's going to be beautiful. But that is just a place. I can't wait to see a person. Now, why can I not wait to see a person? The reason that I can't wait to see my wife and kids when I'm gone is because I know them. I love them. I love the fact that the, the, the little boy, Joseph, man, he has so many fluids coming out of him. <laughs> he is a booger-producing machine. But I love that about him. I don't want to hold him, but I love that about him. I love my daughter because I've gotten to know her and cherish her. You've held her, and yet again, granted, she's not a teenager yet, but I still love her. I love my wife. Why? Because over time, I have gotten to know them. See, the reason that we don't long for it, I feel sometimes, is because we don't really know Jesus. Because when you know Jesus here, you don't want to be apart from him. You want to be with him. It's like when you go on a long trip and you can't wait to be back with your family. Now all of a sudden we are strangers and aliens. We're ambassadors. We're people now on this planet. But we know one day Jesus is coming back and we should just be longing for it in the same way that after you've been gone for a long trip you can't wait to get back to your family. And maybe, just maybe, you don't long for heaven because you don't know Jesus like you should. Because when you know Jesus, you want to be with him. Not in this existence we have now, but look at verse 6. See, we're always of good courage, verse 6, because we know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Verse 7, it should be almost like in parentheses, for we walk by faith and not by sight. He goes, look, while I'm here, he says, I'm good. We walk by faith, not by sight, which goes all the way back to chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. I am storing up for myself now treasures in heaven. It's okay. While I'm not here, that's fine, because I'm living by faith, not by sight. Verse 8. But, or yes, we're of good courage, 
And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Meaning, even if my soul has to escape this body and just to go be with the Lord, I would rather that because then I would go be with the Lord. Verse 9, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. I make it my aim to know him, to love him, to cherish him, to find out who he is, so that in finding out who he is, everything about it, I will know how to please him. I know how to please my wife. I know how not to as well. I know that if I am constantly taking out the trash, my wife is like, yay, good job, when I pick my underwear and socks up off the floor. That pleases my wife. Now, do I do it because I just don't want tension in my house? Maybe. (laughs) I hope I do it because I love when I please my wife. There's promise in it. See, inside of every command in Scripture, the pleasing of God, like murder. The reason that I do not murder command is because I believe I serve a God that will vindicate one day and I don't have to. The reason that I don't covet is because I don't really believe that my neighbor's wife is worth it when God is going to provide for me so much more a promise. Now all of a sudden when he says to please the Lord now, everything about me in my life comes into this is to just say, God, I'm going to make my life in such a way that it pleases you. And let me tell you the greatest thing that pleases God right now. Are you ready for this? Building his church. We tend to make worship services to tell God how wonderful he is, which is great. We read the Bible to tell God how wonderful he is, which is great. But the main thing that God is seeking to do on this planet right now is to build his church. And if you really want to please God, the greatest way to please God is to build his church. To join him in that. That's part of the gospel. That's what's happening right now. That's what the Spirit is doing. If you truly have the Spirit inside of you, like verse 5 says you do, everything about you wants to build the church. Everything. You want to bring your life into the subjection of that. Because everything that God is seeking to do on this planet that is moving towards that future has to do with building the church today. And how I build that church is integral to what it looks like to stand in front of him one day. That's why we come to verse 10. Verse 10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is so important to understand. First is this. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. You are not saved by works. When you stand in front of God one day, you will not be able to say to him, but God, I did this and I did this and I did this from the standpoint of trying to earn merit or favor, trying to earn my way to God. You cannot earn your way to God. Absolutely impossible. The chasm is too great. The only way that I can ever get to God is through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. No way else. He paid the price. He rose from the grave. He's coming again. Everything I do now has everything to do with my faith in the work of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. However, you're not saved by works, but whether or not you're saved is vindicated by your works. See, the Bible is very clear that when I stand in front of God one day, I will be judged according to my works, which aren't my works in the first place, because Ephesians 2, 8, 9 does talk about this reality of not being saved by works. But then in 2, 10, he says, but you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. When I stand in front of God one day, my works will validate whether or not I was truly saved. Now, did everybody hear me? You are not saved by works. But your works will validate whether or not you truly had the Spirit inside of you. See, the blessing that we receive now, listen to me. They will know they're Christians by their 
Faith without works is dead. I can know today whether or not I'm saved, not by mentally assenting to a set of factual information, by the way. That does not work. There is nowhere in the Bible that says if you mentally assent to a factual set of spiritual data that you will go to heaven. That does not work. In fact, a a lot of churches are set up within that context. Let's create a preaching platform whereby which we can get people to assent to a spiritual set of data. I believe this, 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 or I mentally assent to these things, therefore I'm saved. That's not the case. Faith is not mentally assenting to factual information. I know I trust something by how I act towards it. I will know if my faith is legit if what comes out of me are deeds that show the legitimacy of this faith. I can't conjure them. That doesn't work. But literally what God is seeking to do is to bring this world around me and to bring everything to bear on my life to show me whether or not I truly am one that possesses the Holy Spirit. And when I stand in front of God one day, Paul, when he talks about being clothed or unclothed, what he wants to be clothed in is he wants to be clothed in all kinds of works that validate that he truly was a follower of Jesus Christ. He wants to be able to be looked at and said, there is no doubt that the Spirit was alive in Paul because you should see how his faith worked its way out in works. The way that you can know that you're saved today is by looking at the fruit of your life. And let me show you, just so that I'm not speaking uh, uh, heresy, let me show you out of, the, out of the Scriptures. Open your Bibles with me to John. The book of John, chapter 5. He's wrestling through who he is as Jesus Christ, as the one from the Father. And in verse 24, he says exactly what I said earlier. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He who does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Now, we would look at that and go, okay, so all I have to do is believe, right? I just have to mentally assent to a group of facts. Look at verse 29. Exodus 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Do you see that? There's a group that now is going to literally place their faith in Jesus Christ that are going to now, via the power of the Holy Spirit, live a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, meekness, gentleness, self-control, whatever it is that's the fruit of the Spirit, that they're going to evidence themselves. And Jesus says, this group that lives via the power of the Spirit and demonstrated through good works, they are going to enter into life. This group over here, though, is going to be a group that never did. They lived a life of evil, and so therefore they didn't have the Holy Spirit within them. They had never placed their faith in Jesus, so their only eternity that they're going to face is a damnation that's it go with me to uh, Romans chapter 2 let's look at what Paul has to say Romans chapter 2 verse 5 but because of your hard and impenitent heart you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed He will render to each one according to his works. Do you see that? He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for the glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Go with me over to another passage, Galatians 5. He's wrestling through the fruit of the spirit and the the, the, the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5. After laying out the works of the flesh, in verse 21, he finishes with this. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who practice, who do such things, those who by habit are this group of people that continually live these things out because they do not have the power of the Holy Spirit within them, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Go to 1 Corinthians 6. We're going to go through a few different pages. 1 Corinthians 6. 
Look at verse 9. Or don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. And look at this beautiful passage. That's who you used to be. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. Literally, the idea is those who have truly been washed will not live ongoingly this way. That will not be the practice of their lives. Go with me to James 2. What does James have to say about this? And by the way, this is just a sampling. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? The answer to that question is no. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have an accompaniment of works, is dead. In fact, go back to 2 Corinthians, the book that we're in. Paul is going to say something incredibly blunt to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul understood the seriousness of standing in front of God one day. And so in verse 5 he said, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. Listen to me close. The most important day you will ever face is the day that you stand in front of God. You cannot earn your way to God. Those of you thinking you can be good enough in and of yourselves apart from the work of Jesus and the role of the Holy Spirit in your life, you cannot do it. Impossible. But do not think that you will stand in front of God and say, but God, I did this in your name. And I did this in your name. And I did this in your name. Because you might just hear Jesus say, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, I never knew you. Paul wanted to make very sure that people understood the most important day of their life was the day that they stood in front of God. And that's why in 2 Timothy 4, 6 and following, Paul wrote this amazing thing about it at the end of his life. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. There is now laid up for me a crown of life that is guaranteed to me from God. I fought the good fight. I did the things that I was supposed to. The Holy Spirit worked his way out in my life. And when he came out of my life, it was validated over and over and over and over again. So that when I stand in front of Jesus one day, I will be clothed with what the Spirit of God did in my life. There will be no doubt. So therefore, Paul couldn't wait to stand in front of his creator. Because he had ample evidence of the role of the Spirit in his life to validate the faith that he had. I think there will be nothing scarier to stand in front of Jesus naked without that. Now please listen to me. You cannot earn your way to God. If any of you leave here thinking that, don't. But do not think that just because you said a prayer when you were seven that that is faith. Because faith without works is dead. But can you imagine Paul at the end of his life? Oh, gosh. That man knew of the faith that he possessed. He couldn't wait to stand in front of Jesus. He couldn't wait for Jesus to look at him and to look at himself just clothed in the works of the Spirit in his life and just going, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom. See, the reason that we desperately want you to get involved in your neighborhood, the reason that we want you to part with other, partner with other believers within your neighborhood, fulfilling the mission of God within your neighborhood, is we believe that is the best place for you to learn the authenticity of your faith. 
See, the whole goal of your life is to find out, is my faith authentic? Testing the spirit. In other words, now you're finding out, is it real within my life? And the only way to do that is when you're involved in the mission of God. The reason that we've placed you out there amongst other believers is because now you're going to find out, do you use your home for comfort or do you use your home for ministry? Do you use your car for whatever it is they're using it for or do you use it for ministry? Is your family a part of the ministry? Are you teaching them about ministry in and through your home and how you reach out to your friends that are both believers and unbelievers and how you love them? See, now the people that live around me, I'm not trying to sell the gospel like it's Amway. I love them. And I want them to be able to stand in front of God one day and know for sure as they're clothed in the works that demonstrate the Spirit that they are someone that Jesus won't look at them and say, depart from me, I don't know you, you who practice lawlessness, I never knew you. My whole goal in my neighborhood is that my neighborhood would just resonate with the goodness of Jesus Christ because a group of us believers get together and as we get together, we encourage one another, exhort one another, fellowship with one another, but we keep focused on the mission. And anytime any of us starts to deviate from the mission, we go, no, 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 don't. Hang in there. Our job on this planet is to not step outside of the story of God because when we step outside of the story of God and what he's doing on this planet, building his church till the day that he returns, we create a mess, hang in here with us, and then calling other people within our neighborhoods to do the same. Again, not as now selling Amway to a group of people as like it's the gospel, but now we're presenting it as truly people that love them, calling them to this. That's the mission of God. The reason that I crave so much for you to not come here just Sunday mornings, but to go back to your neighborhoods and learn the mission of God, and not to stop there, but to take what you've learned in your neighborhood, and when you go to your workplaces, when you go to soccer games, when you go wherever it is, you take the same principles that you're learning inside of your neighborhood that is demonstrating the reality or lack of reality of the Holy Spirit in your life, and taking it wherever you go, and God reminding you over and over again, see, I told you you're one of mine. See, I told you you have the Spirit within you. See, I promised you that I was, this is the seal, the guarantee. All these things happen in your life now. You are going to face me one day, and you won't regret it in the least. You will be ready to stand before me, because you've been involved in my mission from the start that's why we want you out in your neighborhoods we want you out there because that's the greatest place to find out who you really are I'm going to finish just like this if you want to enter into this today and you never have if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ today's the day today's the first day to beg him to come into your life to change you And then to watch as the Holy Spirit changes your life and you get onto the mission of God. If you're someone who has placed your faith in Jesus Christ and wants to stand in front of now God in a way in which you now can look at him and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant, the first place to start, the first act of obedience is to come up and to get baptized. That's how you join this family. You are buried with Jesus and you're raised with Jesus. Or if you have prayer... Or if you have questions to how to get involved in what God's doing in Simi Valley, California, so that you can know for sure that you're somebody that's on the mission of God that has the Holy Spirit within your life, today's the day. But please, listen to me. I believe that salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone. It is found in God's word alone, but it is validated by works alone. It is so important to understand that reality. Because when you stand in front of God, that is the most important thing that you take with you.